Hello, and welcome once again to episode 15 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name, once again, is Dimitri, and I'll be your host for this episode. And I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Johnny. Hey. And Spencer. Hey, guys. So, Johnny, it's been a while since you've last joined us, uh, and there have been many, many Apple events in between, and many, many new releases, including many minis. Uh, so... Uh, we figured since you had a chance to try all three iPhones, uh, please give us uh, your quick review on which ones you prefer and for what reasons. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I felt like I was one of those YouTube vloggers that gets all of their devices, although I had to actually pay for mine instead of having them shipped to me. Um, and I don't think I'm I'm unique in the situation of feeling like it was really hard to decide this year. We've never had so many options and so many good options. I mean, some years it's like, well, one is clearly good. The other is clearly like, okay. Um, but this year, all three are, are really great phones. Um, so yeah. So like Dimitri said, I've, you know, I've had the pro, the mini and the max. Um, I've tested, used them all. Um, I'll, I'll, I started with the pro. I had that one for, for a couple of weeks, uh, really solid phone, um, it's a little big, um, but great camera. It's got the LiDAR scanner um, and yeah, just overall a solid phone. Uh, I got the Max and the Mini yesterday. Uh, I ran some camera tests because that, that was the thing that I was most interested in, in in the Max. I wasn't as interested in the size. Um, and sheesh, that thing is huge. The The Max is crazy heavy especially with the with the flat sides now it feels just much more hefty um and when having the mini and the max on my desk i always went to the mini for the max um and yeah so anyway from my camera test looking at the mini and the max i i went and the biggest difference between the the max camera and the mini and the pro cameras are well a the lidar uh, the lidar scanner and then uh, the max has a bigger sensor it's supposed to let in like 87 percent more light um, so i thought it was going to be a big win as far as taking sort of night mode shots um, so i took the mini out i took the max out uh, last night around 10 or 11 o'clock and was shooting some scenes around my house and i'll be honest with you i could not see a difference um, the only difference i saw was you know, obviously the amount of time you needed to hold still was less on the max because it's, you know, it has the image stabilization and uh, lets in more light. And so it can, it can take the image faster. Uh, but the end product, as long as you were holding really still with the mini uh, was largely the same. I didn't, I didn't see uh, a big enough difference. Uh, and we're talking about three to $400 difference between these two phones now, if, if you like having the bigger screen, the display on the Max is great. Um, great for watching things and going through social media posts and looking at photos and whatnot. Uh, but I, I think in if it's a competition between the Max and the Mini, I'm, I'm all in on the Mini um, between the two because the Mini is just super portable, great camera, um, TBD on, on battery life, but... Um, you know, I would expect the battery to be smaller on the, on the mini anyway. Um, but yeah, 
it, it's been a great experience to kind of test all of them. And I, I think the mini is a pretty great solution for a lot of people who want something portable and who want, um, who still want to have like a great camera. I, I, I kind of wonder if the mini will continue into next year because Apple has tended to kind of, uh, Uh, give hope (laughs) when it comes to smaller phones and then quickly take it away um so uh, i haven't gotten mine in hand i am awaiting my my first mini to come on monday and my other mini which is not the same kind of ios mini but a mac mini on uh wednesday so uh, i am looking forward to lots of minis arriving uh at my home um but one thing I, i i do kind of hope Apple takes note of is all of the people switching from a high-end iPhone 11 Pro to an iPhone 12 mini uh, and to realize that those people are probably willing to pay whatever Apple says it costs for an iPhone 12 Pro mini, uh, something that has the camera system that is the best out there. It can be a little thicker. Like, there's more battery life to be had there. The phone is smaller to begin with, so it doesn't bother. I wouldn't be bothered by it, I don't think. But I guess who knows? Um, Tim Cook's fragile hands might be saying it's not thin enough. Um, though I don't think he makes those kinds of decisions anyways. Uh, so uh, I, I, I would want to encourage anyone who does work at Apple to uh, kind of realize that people do want the best device there is out there just in the smallest package there is out there and are probably willing to pay premium prices for it. Like Johnny was not afraid to spend money on three phones, although he was returning them, but to see which one he liked. So he would have paid the iPhone 12 pro max price for an iPhone 12 pro mini. If it was worth it, um, I would assume because it's the best of all worlds uh, as much as possible. Spencer, what do you think? Yeah. And I'll go for it. Oh, I was just, I was just going to say, yeah, from what you said, I was talking to my wife yesterday and I was like, it's not even like a, an issue of money necessarily between deciding between the mini, the pro and the max. It was just like, which one do I actually like feel like I want to use? And the mini and its small packages, you know, the best camera is the camera that you always have with you. And if the mini is a camera that I can easily pull out of my pocket and actually use, I mean, that's going to be better than pulling out a, you know, than being hesitant about pulling out my giant phone because it's inconvenient. So <laughs> <The> aircraft carrier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think we're kind of gone. We, we've kind of gone past the days of trying to make the biggest phone, the best phone. I mean, you saw that with just like cell phones, pre-smartphone days where people would make the biggest phone and then it kind of shrunk for, for cell phones until, you know, you got to like those absolutely tiny yes. cell phones. Right. <laughs> uh, my friends that were really thick and i just <laughs> yeah you know it was like a flip phone but it was seriously this big uh and that was super cool but then you know in the smartphone it, it kind of went the opposite we're at the point where the max is like a 6.7 inch screen and that's encroaching on tablet size of screen you know and the lack of bezels can do that and everything and it'll still fit in your pocket But I think more than anything, people are just looking for what is comfortable because we're at a point now where size doesn't really determine what the specs are, more or less. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I can barely hold it. Uh, (laughs) It's possible. (laughs) But I mean, that's the thing. It's like uh, the, you know, the iPhone uh, 
12 even, or 12 mini is uh, essentially has the same specs as any other iPhone, aside from the camera module and the Pro Max, but, you know, we're at the point where it doesn't matter. And so I, even accepting, you know, making the, the mini a little bit thicker, I think people would most definitely buy it. They're just looking for something comfortable. Like you said, if it's something that you don't have to worry about taking out of your pocket and, you know, mine is like it, it's awesome and it's caseless and it's scary because it uh it having flat sides i feel like i'm going to drop it all the time <laughs> so i need to at the very least get a case for it but you know if the mini just because it's smaller and you can hold on to it a little bit more gives you that you know that confidence to take that one you know that one photo then then that's great not to mention also um uh, I mean, before before I was doing iOS development, I was like really really into photography, and I still like photography a lot. Um, but I remember on my on my DSLR, the the fastest photo I could take without having any blur, or yeah, without going any slower, or I guess the slowest image I could take was about like one thirtieth of a second if I was holding really still. Um, but on iPhones, you can you know hold your phone there for a minute or uh, sorry a second two seconds. And I'd assume because of deep fusion, is that what it's called? Deep fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, the images look great, uh, and so you know if it's you're holding your phone there for a little bit longer. In most situations, I would say that probably isn't going to make a huge difference, just because, like you said, the image comes out looking more or less the same, even if you do maybe have to hold your phone there for a little bit longer. So, whatever you know, voodoo that Apple's doing uh, <laughs> with their machine learning to make you know, to stitch those photos together, it really does work because, um, you know, holding your phone there for a second or two comes out having a perfectly sharp image, more or less. So yeah, not to mention, they already take the picture before you press the shutter. So the phone right. is constantly yeah. taking full resolution pictures. Uh, and then when you decide, oh, I want to take the picture now, it will go back in time and say, okay, they actually meant this one, which was super sharp and well-framed. Um, and yeah. uh, we'll make a live photo of the rest of them. Um, so uh, Apple's doing quite a bit to improve the experience of photography uh, for the user as much as possible so that way they can get the shot they meant to take rather than the shot that they're taking in that instant. Um, and I feel like with all of the features and everyone likes to bring up computational photography and all that, I don't think it's much of that. It's the experience that it builds around taking photos because ultimately, like Johnny said, it's the camera that you have on you that's the best camera. Mm-hmm. And that's what iPhones enable. It's you to always have a camera on you, you to quickly get access to that camera and to start taking pictures or recording video. I constantly forget you can tap and hold that shutter button to record a video. I'm always like, fiddling around trying to switch to the video mode yeah me too but that is available so that you can quickly catch a video in a moment uh without thinking too much um so i think apple is doing uh quite a lot there uh to build up that experience properly and it's funny you mentioned like dropping your like being afraid of dropping your phone i dropped my phone for the first time in forever uh this morning uh, no cracks or anything i have a bouncy floor apparently um, but, uh, something I did notice, so my wife did get an iPhone, uh, 12 pro, not the max and not the mini, but when the pro came out, uh, and 
that thing is shiny. And yeah, like if I, I haven't seen the non shiny versions uh, to see if that bezel uh, looks or if the back kind of uh, changes that outlook a little bit. But just seeing that in the clear case, it looks like jewelry. And uh, my my uh, instincts deep, deep inside are are wanting that shiny object as much as possible. So uh, if if only for that, uh, Apple could probably pull off an iPhone 12 uh, Pro Mini. Oh, there's so many words. Um, okay, can we can we drop the numbers one day? Like I know I know people yeah. refer to the number of phone and like it's a big thing and people like to show off but can we just have like iphone 11 or iphone <laughs> iphone pro it's so uh, ingrained and iphone i guess we'll still need the mini and the max uh but at least there won't be a number on it because the number like we how much longer for yeah, the number I mean, it's just like the macbook pro right? exactly i mean we just say same, same with ipads pro right or whatever mm-hmm. yeah ipad pro ipad ipad yeah. mini I mean, iPad Pro, you sometimes refer to as the 11-inch iPad Pro to differentiate sure. it from the first iPad Pro. But yeah, we nor, we don't number our iPads at all. So Yeah, so iPhone, iPhone Pro, and then you can either get the small one or the big one. Uh, I like those that terminology. Yeah. It's like when you went to the Apple store and you said, I want the white one. And they're like, oh, you mean silver. And I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> I just want the white one. <laughs> <laughs> It's a it's the Starbucks phenomenon. I would like a, a medium size. Oh, you'd like a tally or whatever they like to call them. Right. Um, yeah. Exactly. It's like where the the tall one is the smallest one, and the I don't know. It's it's very confusing to someone who's not like ingrained <laughs> in that culture, and I barely keep up with the Apple naming. Uh, and it very much feels like car models where it's like they start tacking on more numbers and things, and it's like ridiculous after yeah. a certain point. Uh, so. I, I applauded Apple for never doing that until the iPhone came out, and uh, I hope they uh, get rid of that naming because it it's getting a little bit ridiculous. Um, Not to so. mention, it's like inconsistent with all of their other products yeah. because nothing else does mm-hmm. that. That's a, that said, like n- none of their other products are anything like an iPhone or what an iPhone can bring mm-hmm. in, so they're probably afraid of messing with that formula uh, as much as possible. That's true. Um, but I feel like they have a certain amount of leeway where if, if they if they are really were really scared they can always switch back. I mean I think the iPod That's the right. iPad did switch back once or twice. Like they did this is the new iPad and then iPad two uh, yet again kind of mm. thing. I don't remember the exact details of that, but I think they have uh, waffled on that decision uh, once before. But uh, segue into another thing that was announced. Uh, they did reset the numbering on the A14. Uh, it is no longer the A14. It is now the M1, the Apple coprocessor, uh, motion coprocessor <laughs> uh, for Macs. Um, so uh, this means that we are entering a brand new generation of uh, super fast supercomputer Macs uh, instead of our old uh, non-supercomputer Macs. Uh, so, uh, Spencer, what new Macs are you looking forward to? Oh, I mean, all of them. <laughs> it's not a great answer. I, I think personally, like I'm always in love with Mac minis for some reason. I, I think they're just like adorable and amazing. And it's it's now crazy just uh, what they can do. Uh, I even thought, you know, the, the 2018 Mac mini was super impressive. Um, and now with the M1, uh, just looking at benchmarks and stuff, uh, and they've been, you know, somewhat validated. Uh, that would be the one that I would probably get. Um, 
I think there is a really good case though for even the MacBook Air because they all have the same processor, uh, more or less, my, plus or minus uh, one GPU core. Uh, so you know, even a MacBook Air could actually become a lightweight development machine where maybe you're not compiling a ton of code, but if it's a personal project or whatever, it would probably be fine. Uh, not to mention, you know, video editing if you're using Final Cut Pro or something. Uh, and so to me, just the prospect of these lower end, um, computers being something that I could actually use as somewhat more of a, well, as like a non, you know, Facebook browsing user, uh, doing more than that is like, it's an exciting thing to me, not having to buy potentially the, you know, one of the more expensive, like 15 inch MacBook pros or an iMac or an iMac pro or something. So uh, in that sense, it would be really cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think I'm excited. I think, was it, I, I, I can't remember if it was us talking about it or somewhere else, but they're saying more or less like April is maybe when the, um, the sort of middle end, uh, you know, MacBook Pros and stuff would be announced with the M1X or, or whatever they're going to call it. So, um, very excited about the M1. I hope that uh, it performs well, uh, you know, post review and post user kind of experience and everything. Uh, but also really excited for just kind of the future, the next iteration. You know, this is first generation stuff. I'm sure, I mean, it's first generation in a Mac, but really they've had, you know, 10 years to work on this. So um, I don't know. Uh, not even cautiously optimistic, but fairly optimistic that things are going to go well. And I'd say for me, the Mac mini would be the one that I would buy myself because I'm always at home. So. And Johnny. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I got a MacBook air when I, right when I started college and that was like the perfect machine, like, especially for a college student being light, easily like, you know, being light and being able to take it wherever. Um, I think it's the computer for most people and they didn't raise the price and you're getting what, six more hours of battery. You're getting, I mean, they threw out a ton of numbers of like, oh, two times this, three times this, five times this. You're getting like a great machine for the same price. And so I was, I was really happy to see that they didn't, they didn't raise any prices. I mean, I would have liked to see in the event instead of them like throwing out all these numbers being like, here's a side by side, like, let's try launching the photos app mm -hmm. on like an Intel chip and let's try it on the M1. Cause we did see them start launching some apps on the iPad or on the, on the MacBook air. And like, it looked really fast. Like it looked like you didn't see that like bouncing icon that you get in on Macs right now where it bounces for like a second and a half and then eventually opens, but it would have been fun to like actually see like here's what that speed difference actually looks like or feels like versus like, Oh, it's three times faster than this. It's like, well, what does that mean? You know, I'm, I'm more of like a visual. I like need to visually see that it's faster. I believe them, but like until I actually see how it like affects me or how it's going to improve my experience. Um, that's, that's when I buy in. Right. So, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's an exciting shift. Um, I'm excited to see what they do with um, the 16-inch MacBook Pro and with iMacs. I, they're going to be able to put a lot of power in 
things that don't run on battery, right? Like, cause they've, they focused a lot on like, oh, we're making these machines really efficient so that you get a lot more battery. But when battery life isn't an issue, can they move all, all of their, you know, everything over to performance and not focus on efficiency to get these crazy fast machines? Mm -hmm. And like, we have to take a look at how they presented this a bit because I saw a lot of skepticism about Apple being able to yeah. pull this off. Uh, and a lot of people just flat out saying that it's a little ridiculous. Apple's showing us all these graphs with A, no numbers on them, uh, and B, no competition. <laughs> so they must not be super duper proud that they're beating their competition and just like a little bit happy. Uh, and that must be the reasoning that they're not showing any numbers and they're not... Uh, bad-mouthing Intel at that point. But we have to remember, Apple still has a relationship with Intel, and they probably still have a certain amount of like uh, agreements in place for the pricing that they get where they can't bad-mouth Intel. Like, in, in order for us not to put the Intel sticker on our Macs, we can't say anything bad about it. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing as far as what kind of agreements they have in place, but they did not mention Intel in any of in uh, any of that presentation uh, in a bad way. They just framed it as, oh, other PCs, which they've always been able to do. Um, so I do wonder that the reason why they didn't, they weren't explicit about the fact that, oh, hey, take a look at how much uh, faster our chip is compared to an i9 uh, in a MacBook Pro, uh, and it's running on with no fan. Um so, like, they didn't yeah. show any of those direct comparisons. We do have Geekbench scores to kind of get an idea of that on, but as many have pointed out, Geekbench does not uh, run sustained over a long period of time, so we have no idea what the thermal capacity uh, of those machines are. But from Geekbench scores, like, we can see that the MacBook Air is about as fast as a 10-core iMac Pro. And... Like there's a lot going on there that to make it uh, cap like that capable. Single core performance is yeah. like way faster than anything we've seen on a Mac, and that's probably what you're going to notice uh, for the most part, unless you have a highly uh, multi-threaded workflow. Which spoiler alert, most people don't. Um, and even if you do, a two core difference is generally not enough to notice uh, if there is uh, like an improvement. Anytime you have a workflow where it shows you the time remaining in minutes, you don't care if it takes another minute because you are going to walk away or do something else in those minutes anyways. Uh, the only time that you really care about performance is when you're watching it change, like watching that dock icon bounce up and down. That's when you care if something is 20% faster because you're going to watch it bounce one last time and it's going to be immediately available. If you already know you're going to yeah. click a button and then walk away or do something else, it doesn't matter if something is 20% faster. If it's 200% faster, that's a noticeable difference. Um, but if it's just a tad faster, it's, it might as well not be there uh, as an improvement unless you're going after year after year improvement and those 20% head up, which is what Apple has been doing on with the A series of chips. Like I don't know uh, if you've seen the graph, but you can kind of see Apple's A series of chips steadily uh, improving over time. Uh, and then Intel's are kind of up here and they're kind of going down and up a little bit. Uh, and Apple just kind of crisscrossed them uh, in that graph uh, and by a large margin uh, as well. So uh, it's going to be very, very interesting to see once people get their hands on these to kind of run 
sustained benchmarks to see uh, how much of an improvement. I remember the funniest number Apple ever showed uh, was with the Mac Mini, and they said uh, the new 2018 new. Uh, 2018 Mac Mini. Right. Uh, they said, "Oh, uh, when you're encoding H.265, this thing is 30 per- times faster. 30 times." Uh, and I ran my own benchmarks, and yes, it was indeed 30 times because the old Mac Mini could only do H.265 encoding via CPU, which was roughly right two frames a second, something something on that order, uh, and it moved to 60 frames a second uh, because it was all hardware based. Now, the T2 came out with the A10, and we're at the A14 generation. So we've had a steady 20% increase, 20% increase, 20% increase since then. So I'm excited to kind of play around with uh, what that H.265 encoder can do now uh, to see like how much of an improvement it is, because that can make a ton of difference when you are encoding. Now, people say, oh, these, ge- these very... Um, rigid encoders they can't don't have as much option the quality isn't as good as a general purpose encoder uh, and that might be true but there are a lot of knobs that you can twist uh with them uh to get things to encode faster and at the end of the day like many people don't care about that level of quality if you're uploading to youtube youtube is going to down is going to recompress it using those shitty algorithms anyways because it's cheaper uh so no one's going to see the quality that you uh, make sure is there if you are going to be encoding or sharing on any streaming platform because it's going to be re-encoded cheaply and it's going to be good enough. Like, guess what? What you watch on TV, that's been re-encoded cheaply. Um, I can guarantee it. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how how performance plays in going forward. Yeah. And it's not just... Um it's not like they've only focused on like the hardware encoding because still the processor itself appears to be fairly Mm -hmm. fast. So even for many general purpose things, it'll probably do fine even for, you know, these lower end Macs. So one thing I was thinking is I, as far as like why they didn't just like dunk on Intel fairly explicitly in the slideshow, I know that I'm well, I'm fairly sure that uh, Intel at the very least owns the rights or like the name of Thunderbolt. So that's one thing that, you know, they pushed hard. You know, we have Thunderbolt 4 or was it? Yeah, Thunderbolt 4 slash USB 4 support or whatever it was. Thunderbolt 3 USB 4. Was it 3? So, you know, with them using explicitly like, hey, this is one of the big features. We still have support for Thunderbolt 3 on this new platform probably didn't want to be like oh yeah by the way intel sucks because you know, that's kind of their their ip as well as far as i know so that that could be one thing there yeah and it's it's but i don't know it, it seems fairly petty of like apple to do something like that anyway i can see other you know computer hardware manufacturers kind of dunking on each other but that doesn't seem like a very apple thing to do although they do have like the whole I'm a Mac, I'm a PC thing, so maybe, I don't know. I enjoyed that. <laughs> that was a fun That was, that, a fun that was good at the very end, yeah. I was expecting yeah. an actual one more thing after it, but that was a good, that was a good nice little throwback. Um, I had a thought. Uh, oh, one more improvement that the M1 does bring over other CPUs, uh, and it's not, it was discussed, again, I don't remember by who, uh, but I did remember what they discussed rather than who they were discussing it um, is improved uh, memory bandwidth 
uh, for the CPU itself. So CPUs have traditionally, and I'm probably butchering this, uh, but through my limited knowledge, uh, they traditionally consumed about as much as they needed at once. uh, And uh, that is how they execute instructions. They look at what's next and they execute that and then uh, look at what comes after that. Um, Now, modern CPUs do a bit more than that. They have a buffer uh, that they go ahead and use uh, to load up several instructions. So that way, if they need to skip forward or backwards, they can easily do that without uh, jumping to the memory controller, which takes time. Uh, But something Apple did when they were building out a unified memory architecture, uh, which for those of you that don't know, it basically means that if you have an image on your CPU uh, or in system memory that you want to uh, tell the GPU to do something with, you don't need to copy it over to the GPU. You just need to tell the GPU, hey, the image is over here. Uh, and then the GPU can then go ahead and use it. And that's like one of the biggest performance bottlenecks with graphics programming is you need to copy over these ginormous buffers, which last I checked, images tend to be the biggest piece of data that uh, you tend to work with in a computer nowadays, especially if you need to do it several times a second, uh, which is a case for video. Uh, so instead of needing to copy that over to a GPU and then wait for the GPU to do something and then copy it back to the CPU so the CPU can do something, this is all shared now. Uh, and one benefit of that is the CPU uh, needs to kind of keep up with the other components that are sharing that memory. So what Apple did was they gave it a very wide um, uh, a very wide buffer that allows lots of memory to come in at once uh, for the CPU to go ahead and process. So uh, the CPU can go ahead and directly cache uh, a ton of uh, instructions all at once. And then in terms of speculation, uh, speculative execution, uh, it can go ahead and jump around as it needs. And a lot of people were saying that's probably where most of the performance gains that Apple's seeing uh, is coming from. Uh, now, it is more uh, expensive from an engineering effort to pull that off uh, in a way that doesn't melt your CPU, I guess. Um, and once again, this is where like my understanding uh, starts melting away uh, itself. But uh that is kind of what is allowing uh, the M1 to be as performant, if not better, than many of its of the CPUs that's competing against at much lower power draw. Um, not to mention the five nanometer process, which itself will have less particles running through the chip, making it hot. Uh, so there's a lot of improvement there. I am wondering like how Apple's going to expand it. They probably will have the same M1 chip even in their higher end Macs because at the end of the day, say day-to-day things, you don't need those that high power. You just need those efficiency cores uh, and they're, they're more than enough for the most part. Um, but when you do want to have a highly multi-threaded workflow, then you want more of those high performance cores to kind of kick in and help you finish that job faster. Uh, so I'm wondering if Apple has, uh, if Apple's going to do like an M1 uh, as your main CPU and then have uh, coprocessors that are just a whole bunch of GPUs on a chip, but on the same motherboard sharing the same or maybe adding memory to the same uh, pool that everything gets to use using a very short fabric uh, between the two chips. Um, kind of like their dual core system or not dual core, dual CPU systems uh, that they used to run. Uh, on the Power Macs uh, and the Mac. Was it Mac Pro? Yeah, I think it was It was still Power Mac uh, at the time. Yeah, like the G5 did mm-hmm. for sure. So uh, that is something yeah. that Apple can go ahead and improve on 
uh, tremendously down the line without necessarily making a more complex die that they're going to have to uh, be able to make without imperfections and things like that. Yeah. Not to mention even sticking a couple, two or three M1s together as well in in sort of the same way, Mm -hmm. Uh, just even for more cores, you know, uh, doing the same thing like you're saying for GPUs, but even just, you know, sticking together a bunch of M1s and and getting, uh, you know, 16, 24 threads or whatever, or uh, cores. Mm -hmm. So definitely, I think, within the realm of possibility, uh, would be interesting to see how what they're going to do for kind of the next generation for sure. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I saw anyone mention this, but if you app order uh, an M1 device on Apple's uh, business store, they kind of go into extra detail in terms of how the SKU SKUs uh, configured in the back end. Uh, and under graphics was uh, the 16 core neural engine uh, text. So I have to wonder if uh, maybe in the future to configure a higher end Mac, you have an M1 and then you have a free slot that you can choose. Do I want a GPU focused slot? Do I want a, um, a neural focused slot? Do I want a CPU focused slot? And maybe the higher end Mac you go, the more of these slots you have that you can choose uh, what your specific workflow is. And then Apple has a bunch of generic parts that they can just fit in uh, modularly. Now soldered, of course, this is Apple we're talking about. Uh, but uh, once those are fit in, then you have a machine that's configured for your use that you specifically need as a professional. Like the Mac Mini, only the silver Mac Mini uh, got updated. The space gray Mac Mini, that's still the Intel one with the 10 gigabit Ethernet um, and uh, stupid amounts of memory and uh, SSD space, that one is still Intel. Uh, and they didn't do it and say anything about it. So that's why Spencer mentioned earlier that there's a high possibility for um, a another event in April with those higher-end Macs uh, that I think will really set the bar very high for any competitors outside of Apple's own devices. Uh, already, it's near impossible for them to catch up in the mobile space, which makes sense. Apple's been making CPUs that rival desktops in a phone with no fan uh, that runs on battery. So it's it's only a matter of time. Any final thoughts? I'm good. Okay. So this episode's uh, this week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Mystico, an iMessage app for your iPhone that makes it easy to send your friends and family passwords, notes, documents, and other confidential information that you just don't want sticking around longer than it needs to. Are your parents asking for your Apple ID password yet again to log into their iTunes on their Apple TV? Send them a Mystico secure message. Mystico secure messages are encrypted using AES-256 before being sent, and only the recipient will receive the key to decrypt them securely through iMessage. The catch? Once they decrypt the message, they won't be able to see it again once it's closed, making sure that they that what you send them can't be seen a second time. Mystico is available in both paper use and as an auto-renewing subscription, so you only need to pay for what you use depending on how you use it, and it comes with free 10 free messages uh, so you can give it a try. We want to thank Mystico for sponsoring our show. Search for Mystico, that's M-Y-S-T-I-K-O, on the iMessage app store today to give it a try. Uh, so now that we went through our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on their knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Uh, now, Ben is not with us today, uh, and we haven't gotten um, a response for last week's prompt, uh, 
Uh, so I figured I'd go over it one more time uh, and perhaps give you a hint. Uh, so uh, in Swift, uh, we have value types for arrays, dictionaries, uh, sets, uh, and the like. Uh, but they are implemented using a reference type under the hood, which allows them to implement something called copy on write. Uh, now, this implementation can be done by any uh, value type, uh, all in pure Swift. Uh, and if you do have a large storage type where you are storing a lot of information, but you are not using an array or dictionary or set under the hood, you are directly manipulating buffers, there's a key API that you can go ahead and use to implement the same copy on write functionality uh, and have it be as automatic for the end uh, programmer. I was about to say end user, but I guess you are a user of an API. Uh, it is an interface, uh, if you will, an application programming interface. Uh, so uh, <laughs> what is that key API that allows you to uh, pull that off? So as an example, uh, let first array be a constant array composed of 0, 1, and 2. Uh, let second array be a variable, so var second array, assigned to first array. So var second array equals first array. The underlying storage will still be shared at the stage. So both of those arrays did not duplicate their storage. If you had a million entries, you still have a single uh, swath of a million entries. So uh, finally, uh, we append three to the second array, which is going to copy those million entries into a new buffer and then add three to that. So that's how copy on write works. Uh, now there's a key API that array will use uh, to make this happen. You can look it up in the standard library. You can uh, do research on your own, uh, but uh, feel free to uh, tweet at us using hashtag uh, complete the code uh, or tweet at us directly uh, and see if you can uh, guess what API that is. That leads us to our final segment, uh, compiler error, uh, where I get to test my fellow completionist knowledge about Swift, Apple, and all things development. Okay, so we have uh, four statements for today, uh, and they are all uh, related to languages that are based on Objective-C. So let's go through them one at a time, starting with number one. So hoping to improve JavaScript, Objective-J was invented as a way of bringing Objective-C's class and message sending syntax and more over to web development, but without all the stars. Statement number two, Objective-C++ is a variant of Objective-C that adds the same extensions to C++ as it does to C, effectively duplicating the implementations of classes, exception handling, and closures. Statement number three, Objective-C Sharp is another variant of Objective-C started in 2009 after the success of the iPhone, hoping to bring dynamic dispatch to C Sharp, but was not actively maintained. And statement number four, inspired by an offhand remark, Objective Rust is a toy language recently developed that adds some Objective-C syntax to Rust for better interoperability between the two languages. So, uh, Johnny, since it's been an absolute <laughs> millennia since you've joined us last, why don't you go first? Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, part of me feels like all of them are fictional. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but that's, just, that's just because my, my, uh, my knowledge of the history of Objective-C and interoperability between everything else is, is probably pretty minimal. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go with, 
Oh, man. Yeah, let's go ahead and go with number three. Objective C sharp. I uh, maybe something about it not being actively maintained. Maybe it is still maintained, and that's the uh, the fiction. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and Spencer. Okay, um, I think the two that uh, kind of stick out to me are one and four. Uh, I know that object Objective C plus plus is a thing. Um, I know, well, I don't know about Ob Objective-C Sharp, but that feels like, uh, something that could happen for sure. And honestly, like with how much people love Rust and, uh, everything that's going on there, I could definitely see that someone just like making a joke about putting kind of Objective-C syntax in there. So maybe, uh, the thing that is weird to me is like kind of doing, uh, something with javascript and kind of combining that there i i mean uh, i guess you'd want to kind of improve javascript's like object uh a way of of using objects a little bit better in javascript but that feels really weird to me i've never heard of objective j i mean i haven't heard of like hardly any of these but <laughs> uh, i'll go with number one <laughs> okay so let's go through the ones that you did not choose first. So let's start with number two. Uh, so Objective-C++ is a variant of Objective-C, and this is absolutely true. Um, and it is the only way for you to interact with C++ code via Objective-C. Uh, it comes with a fun, um, uh, a fun file extension, .mm, for the plus plus of C++. Um, so you get double the implementation and that is actually true because <laughs> you re-implement classes, you re-implement exception handling and you re-implement closures, AKA blocks and lambdas. Um, because though the two versions are not interoperable at all, uh, you would have to use a C++ code to interact with C++ classes, exception handling and closures, though that can be within an objective C method. Uh, so it's, it's a very... Or I think it needs to be in, as a part of a C++ function that's called as a part of an Objective-C method. I've only used this uh, sparingly. Um, so my knowledge on it is, is limited as well. But if you need to use C++ from Swift, this is also your only uh, kind of way into that. Uh, and that's because C++ is its own beast uh, and it's best kept far away from modern uh, runtimes. No, I'm, I'm mostly joking. It's heavily used to make full, uh, very nice things. Swift UI, uh, it's, um, it's layout system is built using a mixture of C++, Objective-C and Swift. So, uh, it's still heavily used nowadays, especially for games and high performance things because there are very little unknowns with Swift. You don't know if something is going to copy on write, which means that you have no idea about the performance characteristics. If you're not like super duper careful with C++, it's very clear, uh, depending on how you set your structures up if something is going to behave a certain way versus not. So uh, that's that's why people use C++ for the most part. Now, inspired by an offhand remark, Objective Rust is a toy language recently developed that adds some Objective-C syntax to Rust for better interoperability between the two languages. Uh, so uh, this is also uh, completely true. Uh, this was done back in August. Uh, so very recently, uh, someone offhandedly uh, said that, oh, wouldn't that be nice if you can use Objective-C's 
uh, syntax, which uh, for those of you that don't know, is a pure addition to the C language. And it's done that way because it's dead simple to detect in a stupid compiler. Uh, so uh, this is why it was something possible back in the 1980s. Uh, and it's also why it compiles way faster than Swift nowadays because all the compiler needs to look like look at for are square brackets, which aren't really used in the language uh, for much else other than like array indexing and things like that. So uh, it's an easy addition to many languages that uh, are based off of the C syntax. Uh, and this includes Rust. So someone went and added Rust, uh, Objective-C features to Rust uh, via macros and a whole bunch of weird stuff. Uh, but they got it working uh, and it was a pretty neat experiment. So uh, check the link uh, in the show notes uh, to learn more about that. Uh, so that brings us to uh, number one, uh, which uh, Spencer thinks is the compiler error. So hoping to improve JavaScript, Objective-J was invented as a way of bringing Objective-C's class and message sending syntax and more over to the web development, but without the stars. And this one is unfortunately for Spencer, uh, the compi- not the compiler error. This is actually real. Uh, and... I don't exactly remember when this came out, but I was super excited about it because I hated JavaScript and I hated (laughs) web development in general because it was full of unknowns. You didn't have a way of centering something vertically back then. uh, And you had to like do super crazy things with tables and you had to fiddle with percentage numbers to get something looking the way you wanted it. Uh, And this was part of a bigger framework to bring things like NSView NS view, not UI view, uh, and uh, stuff like that over to the web development world via something called uh, Cappuccino, I think. Um, and I was surprised to see that it's actually actively being maintained and used uh, even today. So it seems like there's a small following of people that kind of stuck with it uh, and keep it working. It doesn't add anything uh, that can't be interpreted directly by JavaScript. So the compiler itself is written in JavaScript. There are no stars because JavaScript kind of uh, already handles that. So you don't need to stick something into a feature of C. You can just use what's in JavaScript already. Uh, and you can freely use JavaScript, intermix JavaScript code with it. So uh, it works quite well from my understanding. I've never used it for a real project. Uh, so do keep that in mind. Uh, but it is a fun project. And all that means that uh, Johnny uh, snuffed out the error with his master debugging skills. Uh, and <laughs> spotted that Objective-C Sharp uh, may or may not be another variant of Objective-C. So uh, Johnny thought there might have been some uh, some uh, detail that I was twisting about when it was actively maintained or stuff like that. Uh, but unfortunately, I completely made this up. So uh, there is no Objective-C Sharp <laughs> for those that were hopeful listening in. Uh, I think C Sharp has most of the features that you would want from... Objective-C anyways. Uh, So why would you just want to add the square bracket syntax to that? Uh, There is really no point um, uh, to say the least. Uh, So uh, that is all that I have for compiler error. Great job, Johnny. Uh, You you have it after all these months of not being there, uh, practicing (laughs) on the sidelines. Uh, Sorry, guess again, Spencer. Uh, You'll get it next time. That's okay. For sure. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> Knowing your answers, no. Okay. 
so as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion uh, to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet us uh, if there is any topic uh, that you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family. We're also interested in any part of the process of app development um, or anything uh, Apple. If you're an Apple enthusiast, you can see that we talk about a fair amount of uh, general topics as well. So please do share this uh, with your friends and family and your own little community uh, to help make us be the next big thing in podcasting. Um, so once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis. That's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter. Johnny, who is at Johnny D. Hicks. That's J-O-H-N-N-Y-D-H-I-C-K-S. And uh, once again, my name is Dimitri, and you can find me at Dimitri Buñol. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. See you guys. <laughs>